the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. If you want a bang for your buck, especially when it comes to American history, you can't beat the offerings of the National Park Service found in the state of New York. There are more than 20 Park Service units there, ranging from the Women's Rights National Historical Park in western New York to Sagamore Hill National Historic Site on Long Island. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Today, we're going to delve into some of New York's Revolutionary War history with an audio trip to Saratoga National Historical Park. The Traveler's Lynn Riddick caught up with park ranger and military historian Eric Schnitzer, who explains what happened there and why it's significant. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The beauty of lifelong membership with Interior Federal Credit Union is that we are here for you forever to handle any financial needs that life throws your way. Car loans, home repairs, investment accounts, trust accounts for the family. 99% of our members never visit a branch because of our 4.8 star rated mobile app. Make sure you share the gift of membership with your family. Start kids and grandkids with a Little Buffalo account at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NZUA. Saratoga National Historical Park sits about 30 miles north of Albany and 30 miles west of the Vermont border. It's the location of an important battle that took place during the American War for Independence. Park ranger and military historian Eric Schnitzer is here to tell us all about this historic site and new things happening there. Hi, Eric. Welcome to The Traveler. Thank you, Lynn. Well, before you take us back to the year 1777, why don't you start by describing the terrain where you are? Sure. Uh, well, we're in upstate New York, and as is typical in the area north of Albany along the Hudson River, uh, the terrain has a lot of uh, ravines, a lot of rolling hills, and a lot of forests. We uh, you know, have a, a great amount of uh, diversity in flora and fauna here at Saratoga National Historical Park. And you know, indeed, we're here because of the history uh, from the American War for Independence, of course, but uh, people come here because of the natural landscape as well. How many acres is the park? 
the park has about 3,600 uh, acres in total. And when was it established? The park was authorized first in 1938, shortly before World War II. Of course, World War II disrupted uh, the efforts that were ongoing to establish the park, but that happened in 1948. Now, I understand there are five sections of the park, and the Saratoga Battlefield is the largest. So what are the other sections? Indeed, Saratoga Battlefield is by far the largest part of the park. We also have the Saratoga Monument, which is a, a 150-foot obelisk located in the Village of Victory, about eight miles north of the battlefield unit. We then have the uh, Philip Schuyler House, which was the country estate uh, for General Philip Schuyler, who uh, I think many of your listeners will uh, understand. He was, uh, in fact, the father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton uh, <laughs> via the, uh, the musical we hear. Oh, yes. Uh, so a lot of people love going to visit the Schuyler house. That also is uh, about eight miles north of us in the village of Schuylerville. Then we have what we call Victory Woods. Victory Woods is a name given to about a 25-acre parcel, which is where part of the British Army was located during the Siege of Saratoga, which ultimately caused the British to surrender at Saratoga in October of 1777. So we have walkways and pathways there. Uh, and that, again, is located about eight miles north of us in what is the, now the village of Victory. And lastly, in the town of Saratoga, about seven miles north of us, uh, a little less than that perhaps, we have what's called the Saratoga Surrender Site. And that's the location where the British commander, General John Burgoyne, tendered his sword to the American commanding general, Horatio Gates, on the day of surrender in October of 1777. Okay, I want to ask you some more questions about those sites um, in detail a little bit later. But uh, how many visitors do you guys typically get in a year? Not that the last two years have been typical. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> typically, we'll have over 100,000 visitors in a year. That's pretty impressive. Oh, yes. I want to talk about the Battle of Saratoga, obviously, and get into some details and why it was significant. But first, tell us what was happening with the Continental Army during the few months leading up to that battle. Mm, right, yeah. So the Continental Army as a whole was subdivided into a variety of, of uh, uh, armies. Uh, when we think of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, I think we typically think of George Washington's army and what what uh, you know where he was and what he was doing with his army. And indeed, he would have the largest army typically, but his army wasn't the only one. The one that we had up here at the time of the battles of Saratoga in upstate New York was what's called the Northern Army. And that was commanded first by Philip Schuyler and then subsequently Horatio Gates. So the Northern Army of the Continental Establishment, that um, the summer of 1777 had unfortunately suffered a series of defeats and losses. At first in July, early July of 1777, the Continental Army had to evacuate Fort Ticonderoga and Mount Independence, which were two stronghold fortresses uh, located uh, on the shores of Lake Champlain. That army retreated, and then that army had to fight what's called the Battle of Hubberton, the only battle of the Revolutionary War fought in Vermont. 
that was a loss. The army had to, a segment of the army also had to subsequently fight in the Battle of Fort Anne, again, upstate New York, also a loss. And there were various skirmishes that were fought. So as the British were inexorably advancing south, the Americans were retreating, uh, just keeping out of the reach as much as they could of the British invasion from Canada. So uh, by the time the American army was at its lowest ebb, the American army, the Continental Northern Army, had retreated all the way to the confluence of the Mohawk and Hudson Rivers, about eight miles north of Albany. Albany was the British destination. So the American army was situated at what was called the Sprouts. It's a wonderful name given to the fact that the Mohawk River, as it flows into the Hudson River, created a series of chutes and streams and small rivulets, which created a series of islands. So the American army was populated on all these various islands and on the north shore of the Mohawk River, and they were just at their lowest ebb in August of 1777. But fortunes were about to turn shortly thereafter. <laughs> this sounds great. This sounds like a documentary. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was October when the Battle of Saratoga happened. And so harsh winter conditions hadn't set in. Uh, they were probably extremely discouraged with all the losses that you just described. Did they have the resources they needed? Hmm. Yeah, an interesting story, sad story, uh, related to the campaign is the fact that when the Americans uh, retreated out of Ticonderoga and Mount Independence, they could only carry what they had with them. All of the boats that they uh, piled stuff in, military materiel, et cetera, baggage for the officers and all those things were captured by the British. So the only things the Americans were able to save were the things that they were able to carry off themselves. No carts, no wagons, nothing else. And so indeed, part of the story of the American army retreat and their, their being at their low ebb in August of 1777 had to do with the fact that they lost all of their tentage all of the cannons that were at Mount Independence in Ticonderoga, all of those things were lost. All of that gunpowder, all of that food that they had up there was lost. So indeed, like you say, were they able to reacquire, replenish, replace those things that were lost? And although it wasn't a one-for-one -one replacement by any means, the truth is they were able to get dozens of pieces of artillery. They were able to get literally thousands of reinforcements in the form of some continentals, but principally militia. They were able to get new issuances of tents. They were able to get uh, their ammunition replenished. So indeed, they were able to uh, uh, call it make do, but in a way that was more than plenty uh, for the time of the battles of Saratoga, uh, which uh, started in mid-September of 1777. So what types of artillery were they using? Cannons, uh, muskets, you know, curious to know uh, if there were more of one item than another. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So every uh, infantry soldier would have a musket. This actually was not the case earlier in the year where there was such a paucity of muskets that they actually issued spears 
to some of the continental troops because they had no muskets enough to go around for every single person. Uh, and I, again, I'm talking earlier in the campaign. That was not the case by the time of the battles of Saratoga, although that would make for some interesting living history here at Saratoga. Uh, but indeed, every uh, soldier would have a musket here at the time of the battles. And when you uh, start off uh, uh, by the time of the first battle of Saratoga, the 19th of September, the Continental Army alone has over 7,000 troops. In insofar as artillery, uh, they had two dozen pieces of artillery. So they had a lot more muskets on hand than cannons. Now, mind you, they had left behind at Ticonderoga and Mount Independence over 100 pieces of artillery. So the artillery they had by the time of the battles of Saratoga in uh, fall, early fall, was, was a scant reflection of what they had had previously that they had to, uh, that they couldn't carry off during the retreat. But regardless, it was enough to beat the British here in the battles. So at what point was the decision made to fight right there in Saratoga? And talk a little bit more about how well the British were established in the area. Uh, were they uh, on both sides of the Hudson? You mentioned Vermont. Um, curious to know how long they were established there and how many soldiers that they had bivouacked there. So uh, basically, the month of August was a, a very important month. And although the Corps, the Northern Army, the Continental Army, was at that location I mentioned earlier, the Sprouts, the confluence of the Mohawk and Hudson Rivers, they were digging in. They were fully prepared to defend Albany just eight miles away from Albany itself. And they knew, or, or I should say they figured, that was Burgoyne's destination by that point. It seemed to be the most logical. Uh, destination uh, for Burgoyne uh, and his advance into uh, upstate New York. As for the British, they were located a good 40 miles north of the American positions. And they had established themselves there uh, in the latter part of July of 1777. So throughout all of August and even into September, the British had positioned themselves in uh, the area around uh, what is, uh, it was then now, it was then then and is now Fort Edward, New York, uh, which is a, today it's a village located right on uh, the east side of the Hudson River, on the upper part of the Hudson River. And so the British had uh, achieved Fort Edward at the latter part of July, the American forces had abandoned it previously. And the British had stretched out south of there, uh, all the way to the place that they eventually crossed over the Hudson River, which they did in mid-September. But the British were located there, and they spent a lot of time there, about a month and a half they spent from the beginning of, of uh, August to the middle of September. And the reason why their presence was maintained there for so long is because they were waiting for supplies to catch up to them. You know, a soldier can advance through the woods pretty swiftly, but a wagon can't. You know, a wagon or a boat, it's going to take time, especially with the environment that the wagons and boats and carts had to go through. So it took time for General Burgoyne, the British commander, to accumulate enough supplies, particularly food, in order to cross the Hudson River, which, like I said, he did in mid-September. As for the Americans, with a new commander having replaced Philip Schuyler, Horatio Gates, uh, Horatio Gates decided to move the army north. He thought that defending Albany from nothing but eight miles away was not a good idea. So he moved the army north to Stillwater, 
Uh, Stillwater is uh, maybe a dozen miles north of where the army had been. And so there they are in Stillwater. And then one of his engineers, a colonel by the name of Tadeusz Kosciusko, uh, recommended that the army move up to Bemis Heights, which was just a couple miles north of Stillwater. So it's not far away at all. And Gates and, and Benedict Arnold, uh, one of his uh, generals in the army, surveyed Bemis Heights and said, yep, Kosciusko's suggestion, spot on, let's do it. So the Northern Army moved up onto Bemis Heights on the 12th of September. The very next day, on the 13th, the British began to cross the Hudson River to the same side of the river that Bemis Heights was on, the west side of the river. And that was located uh, about uh, 11, 12 miles north of Bemis Heights, the British point of crossing. And did you say how many British soldiers were involved oh, in right. this? Uh, you mentioned 7,000 <laughs> colonial soldiers. Yes, indeed. So uh, by the time the two armies met in battle on the 19th of September, that's a week before the Americans moved up to Bemis Heights, and a few days after the British had finished their crossing of the Hudson Rivers. Well, so on that day, uh, when you have the first battle of Saratoga, the American army, the Northern army had about 8,300 officers and soldiers, continental and militia, uh, both. As for the British, they had about 8,500 in their army. And that consisted of British soldiers, German soldiers. We usually call them Hessians, whether they were or not. Some were, some weren't. Uh, that consisted of the American royalists, or Tories, if you will, to use the pejorative, uh, the loyalists, uh, Americans who sided with the crown against the revolution. It also included, of all things, this will sound odd, but French Canadian militia draftees, uh, officers and soldiers from the province of Quebec who had been forced into service by the uh, British governor of the province uh, to serve in Burgoyne's army, and First Nations people, principally uh, Haudenosaunee Mohawk and Abenaki. Uh, warriors from the seven nations of Canada. So what was the boiling point that got the Battle of Saratoga underway? On the morning of the 19th of September, General Burgoyne decided that he was going to make a move on the American camp. He knew that the American camp was located a few miles south of his own camp. He knew where they were in general, not the specifics, but he knew in general where they were located. And he figured that what he should do is break his army up into three separate columns and advance upon the American camp with these three columns simultaneously. And so the advance began on the morning of the 19th of September. Well, the American Northern Army, of course, has its principal forces behind the defensive lines on Bemis Heights, but they have scouts and skirmishers and sentries in advance of the main uh, uh, camp. And so reports come back that the British are packing up their camp. And the American forces are going to react uh, by, by investigating. And sure enough, it's confirmed that the British are on a move. Some of the sentries got caught up with skirmishing with some of the vans of the British columns. And it's General Benedict Arnold who tried to convince Horatio Gates, his commanding officer, that he, Arnold, should move out with a substantial force and attack the British as they're marching toward the American camp. And Burgoyne, uh, you know, Gates didn't like that idea. It was too aggressive. It was taking too much of a risk. And so he and Arnold decided that they would compromise and that Arnold 
would order out the Virginia and Pennsylvania riflemen under the command of Colonel Daniel Morgan and the New England Light Infantry under the command of Major Henry Dearborn. And those troops, about 700 in all, would move north and skirmish the enemy, uh, skirmish with the enemy, uh, and then withdraw back to the American camp so that by the time the British got to the American camp, the British would have been bloodied severely. Interesting. And so tell me a little bit about General Gates. What was his background? Well, General Gates had been a former British Army officer. He rose to the rank of major. So he was a field officer in the British infantry. He sold his commission uh, in, uh, uh, you know, before the few years before the Revolutionary War began, settled in Virginia uh, a few years before the war began. And then when the war began, he decided that he was going to put his lot in with the revolution. He was a very much a revolutionary uh, in favor of the the American cause, and he was the army's first adjutant general. So he was a brigadier general in 1775, and he had the uh, position of call it head administrator of the Continental Army under George Washington. And uh, when he was promoted to the rank of major general, he was no longer the adjutant general of the army. Now he was a, a general who could command armies. And his first real command was of the Ticonderoga garrison in the fall of 1776. And um, there was no battle or anything that occurred there that he himself was in command of in 1776. So fast forward to Saratoga when it comes down to it, when he fights the battles of Saratoga insofar as commanding the American army here, this was his first battle. And he stepped up to the task. Um, How long did that conflict last? It's interesting. If you do a, a web search or something like that, and you look up Battle of Saratoga, you'll, you'll see the phrase Battle of Saratoga. But the truth is, there were two battles of Saratoga separated by two and a half weeks, not days or hours, but weeks. You know, it is maybe typical to have a, a battle over the course of a couple days. You typically see this in the Civil War, for example, not so much in the Revolutionary War. In the Revolutionary War, a battle will take place on a singular day over the course of a few hours. But the battles of Saratoga are fascinating for many reasons. I'm biased, of course, but one of the reasons is that these battles occur because on the 19th of September, the two armies close in and then the British win the battle, that they win the field. The Americans retreat back to their camp. The British won an albeit Pyrrhic victory, but they won the battle. They hold the field of battle. They then afterward set up their camp. They set up their own system of defenses, whilst the Americans, located about a mile and a half south of them, are continuing to build up their own defenses and strengthen them and receive reinforcements. Two and a half weeks pass by in which you have both armies in situ, kind of looking at each other, not literally because of all the woods, the intervening woods, but you have a lot of skirmishes going on around the periphery uh, on the west and the east and to the north of of the British uh, uh, positions. But after the two and a half weeks pass by, General Burgoyne decides, you know what, I got to do something because it doesn't appear that waiting here any longer is giving me any advantage. I got to make a move. And so on the 7th of October, General Burgoyne decides to make his move. And that was the day of the second battle of Saratoga, the 7th of October. It was a decisive American victory. How long did that battle last? The battle itself was a few hours. Oh, uh, that's short. 
Oh, yeah, it was. It was a short battle. Uh, the battle proper began at about four o'clock and it ended at about seven o'clock. And it was, like I said, a decisive American victory. The American forces, led by General Benedict Arnold, were able to capture part of the British camp. And the British suffered tremendous casualties, over 600 killed, captured, and wounded in that battle, uh, compared to the American losses, which were about 150. Tell me about the surrender. Describe that for me. Sure. Well, uh, if I may, uh, we have the Second Battle of Saratoga ended a huge British loss. The next day, the British begin to retreat. And they retreat about eight miles north of us, all the way to what is now called the village of Schuylerville. In the 18th century, it was called Saratoga. And so the American army under Horatio Gates' command pursues Burgoyne and surrounds Burgoyne. And uh, there's a couple of days of a siege that takes place. And after this takes place, Burgoyne decides that he needs to sue for peace. He recognizes that there's absolutely no way he can get to Albany. He, there's no way he can continue his retreat because his uh, retreat path has been cut off and he's running very low on provisions. So he sues for peace. And then there's a couple of days of negotiations for what comes to be called eventually the Convention of Saratoga. And this is agreed to, these terms, these surrender terms are agreed to by both Gates and Burgoyne on the 16th of October. The following day, General Burgoyne surrenders his army. And this is so significant because it marks the first time in world history that a British army ever surrendered. A British army had never surrendered before. It's hard to believe that they would have given up at that point, that particular part of the country. Yeah, for the British, you know, they they tried to uh, the quell the rebellion in upstate New York. You know, they thought there would be a lot of American royalist support, which was rather tacit in comparison to what they expected. And they expected that the Northern Army would uh, easily dissipate uh, in the various battles and skirmishes that were that were fought. And as it was, uh, the British were wrong on both counts. And uh, in the end, they had no choice to surrender, particularly because they were outnumbered almost three to one and running so low on rations that when Burgoyne signed his name on the Convention of Saratoga on the 16th of October, <laughs> unfortunately for him, uh, he had only enough rations to last out until the 20th. This is Lynn Riddick with Eric Schnitzer at Saratoga National Historical Park, and we'll be back with more after this short break. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. 
The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. I'm back now with park ranger and military historian Eric Schnitzer at Saratoga. I guess the most significant thing to come out of this battle was the foreign support the colonial army was able to get at that point for the revolution. Talk a little more about that and maybe some of the other significant events that followed this battle. Uh, one of my favorite lines is that once word of Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga reached our ministers in France, particularly Benjamin Franklin, and word spread throughout Europe about this great victory at Saratoga. Ben Franklin, along with uh, uh, Silas Dean and Arthur Lee, uh, wrote a report to Congress and in December of 1777, and they stated that the victory uh, over Burgoyne at Saratoga is being marked in France as if it had been a French victory performed by their own troops over their uh, ancient enemy. Now, of course, England, i.e. Britain. And the French, as you can imagine, were elated over this first ever British army surrender in world history. Uh, this led to being the, the biggest piece of the puzzle in trying to confirm the thing that we had sought most of all diplomatically, which was the Franco-American alliance. The Franco-American alliance was now a shoe-in, and indeed, uh, King Louis approved of it, and his ministers uh, signed off on it, along with our ministers in France in February of 1778. And so when this occurred, we now had a military and commercial alliance from, with France and official French recognition of the existence of the United States of America. France was the first European power to do so. And with this Franco-American alliance, you know, aside from the commercial aspects, you now had the, the military alliance, right? So the French were able to send over an army and some uh, uh, part of their navy in 1778 to try to help us oust the British out of Rhode Island because the British had a, a you know, a, a large presence in Rhode Island which they had had since 1776. And unfortunately, the Battle of Rhode Island, which was a joint Franco-American effort, resulted in a disaster. It was a disaster for us. In 1779, the following year, we tried it again, another joint Franco-American alliance operation. This time, we'd take it south, all the way to uh, Savannah, Georgia. And you had then the battle that took place there. It was a disaster. Again, you'd think that you know, maybe with this Franco-American alliance, we would have done better with their help, but so far, no go. 1780 was an off year. We decided, okay, let's not try it again. Things aren't working well. 1781, though, that was the year where it really uh, uh, came to happen uh, brilliantly at Yorktown, the joint Franco-American alliance operation against Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown in October of 1781 was, of course, uh, met with resounding success. 
in which you had the second ever British army in world history surrender. <laughs> Very interesting. So going back to the surrender and the surrender site there at the park, um, what does that look like? That's a relatively new addition to the park, correct? Yeah, so uh, the Saratoga Surrender Site is one of the earliest marked, uh, meaning with a historical marker, sites. Of the American Revolution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it when it comes to the, uh, the places where things happened during the course of the uh, Northern Campaign of 1777, if you go into through the 19th century, very few of these things received permanent markers. One of them, probably the most famous of all, is the boot monument that we have here at Saratoga Battlefield. That was erected in 1887. Well, also in the 19th century was marked the place where General Burgoyne surrendered himself to uh, General Gates. And that is the present day Saratoga surrender site. So it is one of the oldest oldest marked locations. And to have that now within our park boundaries is sublime. We're so excited to have it because before we had the battlefield, we had part of uh, where the siege of Saratoga happened uh, via Victory Woods, but we didn't have the actual place where General Burgoyne handed his sword to Gates and where the two generals kind of, honestly, they kind of hung out and dined together on this hilltop over the course of a few hours as the, the, the Burgoyne surrendered army marched by at the bottom of the hill. So now we have it within our park boundaries. And so what we have there is a parking area so visitors can park their cars. There's some uh, wayside exhibitry, but the principal star of the show, if you will, aside from the 19th century historic marker, which is still there, is a, a, a wonderful granite commemorative uh, I don't want to call it a plaque, that doesn't do it justice, uh, but it's this, this wonderful wall in which you have descriptions, firsthand accounts from participants uh, from the day of the surrender. And there is this absolutely beautiful bronze bas-relief of Trumbull's painting of the surrender at Saratoga, the original painting of which hangs in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. How was it that the park was able to acquire this uh, piece of property? Well, it's a, a story that uh, I, I don't know if I'm uh, adequate to the task to explain the details of, but it was through partnerships, uh, partnerships, governmental from the state, as well as private entity partnerships that, that all came together, recognized the importance of this site, and they all uh, you know, worked together to, to make it happen. Eventually, it took years. You know, it wasn't just an overnight thing. It didn't take a year. It took many years. Uh, and here we are. We're able to enjoy it. Yeah, it seems um, like a very important component of telling the story of the Battle of Saratoga. It's essential. You know, it is truly the bookend. You know, it's it's the uh, the epilogue to the Battles of Saratoga. Uh, I, I'd like to point out the uh, uh, it's kind of obvious. I already mentioned it, right? But when uh, Saratoga as a historical event was commemorated uh, by uh, the the U.S. government in the early 19th century via their purchase of the John Trumbull painting, it wasn't the battles of Saratoga that Trumbull had painted, it was the surrender at Saratoga. And the scene, albeit very romanticized that he painted, uh, was exemplified by General Burgoyne handing his sword over to Gates. And that finally is within our park boundaries, thanks to this uh, multi-partnership effort. Well, let me ask you, um, any archeological digs happening there in the park? 
We don't have any currently, but in the past couple of years, uh, we've had uh, some archaeological work done on the battlefield unit in some particular places, bat battle, uh, you know, field where fields of battle uh, took place. Um, these are jointly uh, done by Nas the National Park Service, as well as AVAR, the American Veterans Archaeological Recovery, which is a veterans organization uh, in which uh, you have vets come together from uh, uh, you know, various branches of the military, and they're keen to perform archaeological digs at historic sites, not just in national parks, but, but uh, they, they come here and they do brilliant work. Where do you keep some of the artifacts that have been found over the years? Do you have a museum there or in your visitor center? Yeah, so archaeologically recovered artifacts are ultimately, it takes a, uh, there's a process of cataloging and cleaning, etc. But ultimately, they're brought back to, in our case, uh, Saratoga Battlefield. And most of the artifacts are uh, put in our curatorial building where we keep most of the artifacts. Like pretty much any museum, we only have a small, tiny portion of artifacts on display at any one time uh, due to space. Uh, you know, you can't put them all on display because it would overwhelm the space. Mm -hmm. uh, there wouldn't be room enough for it. So we have a, a dedicated building to preserve and protect our artifacts that have been found on uh, the battlefield. And when I say our artifacts, I I mean artifacts recovered from the from the from the park, uh, but they are of course uh, publicly owned, right? Uh, as part of the National Park Service. Now your park received six point six million dollars in funding from the Great American Outdoors Act, and I understand that that's being used to improve the self guided battlefield tour road. How's that project going along? Uh, how long is the road? What's being done? So. Uh, Normally, let's say before this work was being worked on, you'd visit the battlefield, you'd be able to then drive on our 10 mile long battlefield tour road. It's a one way loop that goes through the park. There are 10 different historic stops. They're all optional. So you're not compelled to stop at each one, but they have pull offs at each one with parking lots. And you can get out of your car and you can read the different wayside exhibits, uh, which I'll have you know, visuals and information about what happened at the particular location in question in 1777. The, each, each one of these tour stops also have walking paths, and some of them are pretty complicated, the walking paths, and pretty extensive. Unfortunately, over the decades, and I do mean decades, a lot of the infrastructure has been uh, uh, literally crumbling. Uh, there are sinkholes, there are crumble, crumbled areas of the pavement, there are areas where there is some slumping, there were areas where it was just, you know, just like I said, in, in very, very rough shape. Also, most of the tour stops, the pathways were not ADA compliant. So there were whole sections in most of the tour stops where some people would not be able to experience uh, uh, because of, of the inaccessibility unfortunately. Further, all of our wayside exhibits that we have had out there were installed in the 1960s and 1970s. So they're rather old <laughs> um, and in need of replacing, and not just replacing in kind, but in need of updating. So how's the project going along? Great. 
Uh, it's multi-year. So, uh, you know, insofar as work on the wayside exhibits and 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 working on and, and making new ones with new visuals and new texts and everything else, that's been ongoing for years. Uh, the and, and the planning for the actual physical construction has been going on for years. The actual work is finally done starting this year. They began in the spring. And the work being done, I, I go out there once in a while to see uh, the work being done. It's phenomenal. They're rerouting some of those pathways to make them all accessible for, for all visitors to see. Uh, they are getting rid of all of those sinkholes and slumping areas. And of course, all of the old crumbling asphalt has been removed and they're repaving it. They're going to eventually uh, next year install the new wayside exhibits that are uh, in, in the final stages of, of confirmation that we're working on. So uh, it, it's it's a long process. Uh, you know, unfortunately, this does mean that some of our tour road stops are closed uh, to visitors and, and nobody can see some of those tour stops. So you might come from far away and come to see the park and you're excited to go out and check out the battlefield and find out that maybe Arnold's headquarters, the Nielsen house at stop two is completely cordoned off because of the work being done there. So it's a long process, but the end result is gonna be phenomenal. So is the road then open partly? Parts of the road are available for use by the public? Right it now? depends, yeah. It, it's it's on a complicated rotational schedule. If you were to ask me that uh, before Labor Day, I would say yes. However, after Labor Day, we had to make a decision to close the tour road to all traffic. This includes bicycling and walking on weekdays. It's open weekends, but on weekdays it's closed. And the reason for that is the nature of the tour road. The, the tour road is a one-way road, but the construction vehicles, in order to do the work efficiently and stay to their schedule, they need to go back and forth on that tour road. And so we can't have visitors driving out there and then surprise, here comes a dump truck you know, coming around the corner at you. We, we don't want that, of course, nobody does. So that's why we have the tour road closed for the rest of the year on weekdays. Okay. I wanted to ask you, you know, war history can be confusing because there are always so many skirmishes happening in many different locations, as you have described uh, today. And so as someone who knows a great deal about what happened there, how do you keep the facts interesting and meaningful without overwhelming folks, especially kids? Well, that's great. Um, yeah, so I, I think it has to do with a lot of factors, not only one thing, but a lot. And this is just something that you learn over time through doing it and, and seeing how others do it, seeing what works and what doesn't work, uh, uh, learning from your own interactions, etc. So in no particular order, I think one of a, let, let's start with number one, again, in no particular order, I would say one of the worst things that I could do is stand in front, of a, in front of an audience and recite dates, right? Go down the list of dates like it's a classroom, like you got to remember these dates for a test. You know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, most people would agree that they learn history in school. It's a process of dates, you know, and dates can be important, right? Dates are important, of course. Uh, in the telling of the story, sometimes dates have to be said. We have to talk about the dates of the battles of Saratoga or the date that Burgoyne surrendered. But are all dates where every single thing happened? Is is it important to tell visitors every single date? You know, this happened on this date and this happened on that date. Or is it more important to just tell a narrative of events? 
and be more generic about the timing. If they ask about what date did that happen, obviously, uh, we want to make sure we know the answer to that. Another thing I think is essential is delivery. You know, if you're talking to a crowd of people and you, and you, you, you speak like you're like a robotically, well, that's going to put everybody to sleep, including myself, you know, even though you might love the subject, the last thing you do is uh, you don't want to appear uninterested yourself in telling the story. So I think having a passion for it, and it has to be a real passion, not a fake passion. Fake passion, I think a lot of people can see through that, but a real passion for the story is, is I think, essential for telling the story. And lastly, uh, building off of the date issue, uh, I would say make make history a human interest story. And this actually jibes perfectly with our new Wayside exhibits because our current Wayside exhibits that we've had since you know the 60s, most of them, almost all of them, are geared toward specific brigades and divisions and regiments. And they moved here and they did this. And you know, I love that information. I'm a military historian. I love that kind of thing. But most visitors, they'll read it and they're like, I don't relate to that block on the map and it moved here. And I don't know, what is that, you know? So what we've done with the new Wayside exhibits is made sure to focus on the people. So if you were to go out there right now, if the tour road was open, <laughs> it's a weekday, so it's not, uh, you would read about, again, the military units and the military actions and everything and a lot of dates, a lot of dates. With the new Wayside exhibits, you're going to learn about things that you typically don't even read about in books. You're going to learn about the people of the two armies and how diverse they were. It's incredible to learn about how, you know, there were, uh, let's say, uh, 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 from the Haudenosaunee Mohawk at the time of the battles of Saratoga, men and women and children seeking refuge with Burgoyne's army because they had been uh, threatened out of their homes. Uh, 50 miles away, and they trudged through the wilderness to find Burgoyne because Burgoyne was going to protect them against the revolutionary Americans. Because being Mohawks, of course, uh, they sided with the British, as did most of the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy. If you wanted to learn that story on the present waysides, doesn't exist. But our new waysides will have that kind of information. Different points of view. Indeed. Well, how did you get interested in military history? How long have you been with the park? And uh, what do you personally find most interesting about uh, what happened there? So my interest was kindled in elementary school. I had a great fourth grade teacher and in New York State, you learn about New York State history. This was back in uh, ye old 1980s. Uh, and uh, I, I learned about the Revolutionary War in a local level. I loved it. I loved it. Then fast forward to middle school, seventh grade, we learned about American history, the, the United States history, right? And we learned about the Revolutionary War more broadly and indeed locally because the battles of Saratoga happened locally. I'm a local person, I should say, I, I should add. And uh, I had a great seventh grade teacher. And uh, very passionate, very knowledgeable. And, you know, he loved it himself. It wasn't just like he had to teach it because he he was told, you know, he felt it too. And uh, that, that passion in, instilled within me. And I loved it to this day. I, I still love it, obviously, to this day. Um, and I never dropped it. You know, it's an interest I've had ever since, you know, strongly ever since grade school. I myself became a seasonal park ranger in 1997 here at Saratoga National Historical Park 25 years ago. 
And uh, I'm still here. I became permanent in the year 2000. And now I'm the park ranger uh, and military historian uh, here at the park. Uh, it's a passion of mine. And uh, you asked about what it is that I love about the park. What is my passion here at the park? And, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of many things, but one of the things that I absolutely, well, there are two things I love. One is I love to talk to people about what happened here in 1777. The other thing I love more on a personal level is history is always changing. And it's it's always changing because we're always finding new information. And we're able to sometimes use that information to have better understanding of what happened in the past. And therefore, reinterpretation, revisionism is essential. Uh, in my lifetime here at the park, we have, if I think about the things that we were saying, say, back in the 1990s, because we thought they were true compared to the things that we uh, have a better handle on today, there are some major differences. And it's exciting to be part of that process of uh, having uh, new sources revealed, assessing those sources, reviewing the historiography, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then coming to the conclusion that what we all thought was the correct narrative was, in fact, wrong. And now we have a new understanding of the past. And it's just, it's it's exciting to be part of that process. I love it. It's great. Well, you are so good at it. You certainly know your stuff and you have a, a fantastic passion in explaining it. So I'm sure that you make the history there come alive for all the visitors that you get to talk to. Well, thank um, you kindly. I try. <laughs> I try. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I love it. And, um, I, you know, it's... Um, Sometimes a little personal here, uh, there have been visitors who come to the park. They say that they had an ancestor here who fought in the battles of Saratoga, let's say. And because of my position and because of my, my, if I may, expertise in the military history of the American War for Independence, I am able to present them with a picture of, let's say, a muster roll with their ancestor's name on it, something that it's almost a guarantee they'd never seen before, uh, because genealogists don't typically get to that level. They'll find secondary sources, which will refer to their ancestor's service, but not the actual documentation. So showing it to them, some people have cried over it with tears of joy, you know, being able to see that. And that is so affecting to me as well, to see them feel it you know, uh, so personally, I, I love it. It's it's just a wonderful time uh, and experience to have. Well, Eric, um, thanks a lot for your time today. It's been really interesting uh, to learn about the park and its history, and you really brought it to life. And we wish you the best on completing your maintenance items there and getting that battlefield road back open. Thank you, Lynn, uh, so much. I really appreciate the interview and thank you for reaching out to us at Saratoga National Historical Park. We're, we're very grateful. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. There is so much American Revolution history preserved and interpreted in the National Park System. With the 250th anniversary of the nation not too far off, it's not too early to get some of these parks on your to-do list. Next week, I sit down with Chris Wilhelm, author of From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park, to discuss how the park came to be and the challenges it continues to face. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.